Hi, my name is Alan Bediner. It's a great pleasure to be here tonight with all of you to hear Stephen talk. I've known this guy for 20 years, and um, I never fail to be inspired and uh, <coughs> educated by uh, listening to him talk, particularly about the Dharma. And uh, I was already a fan of his when I met him, uh, having read Alone with Others, and would uh, often spend time with him in, in uh, France, where I'd sneak away from Plum Village for a glass of wine with he and his wife, Martine, <coughs> who lived nearby. And when he came to the States, about eight years ago, I convinced him with some difficulty to join me on a tour of what I call the Buddha land, the places in the Buddha where, the places in India where the Buddha lived and taught. And this was a fascinating journey for both of us. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I was very fortunate to have an ongoing commentary of the historical importance and the context of each of these places. After all, Stephen knows more about what happened in these places than most people alive. And I'm particularly excited about this book because so much of what <coughs> is in the book of his piecing together the historical life of the Buddha uh, came from his discoveries and his experiences uh, in India, in, in the places themselves. So without further delay, I'm going to turn this over to Stephen. But I have to say that uh, I, in my experience, his voice is the most authentic, or among the most authentic and clear voices of Buddhism in our time. Stephen Batchelor. Thank you very much, Alan. That's a very kind introduction. Um, rather exaggerated, of course, in its praise. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you nonetheless. And thank you all for being here. I'm, I'm on the, the sort of the, the, the end of a book tour that started three weeks ago in Boston. My book was published uh, on March the 2nd, and since then I've crossed the United States. And tomorrow morning I leave for Vancouver. I'd like to share with you some of the ideas and some of the stories that make up this book, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. It's, um, in some respects, uh, a memoir. It's a story of my own 37-year involvement with Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is all I've ever done. Um, I have no other qualifications whatsoever. I have no academic credentials. I've never studied Buddhism in a university. I was trained from the age of 19 in uh, Buddhist monasteries in India and then in Switzerland and subsequently in South Korea. I was a monk for about 10 years during that time. And since then, having returned to Europe, I've worked as a, a writer, as a translator, as a meditation teacher. And um, much of that has been made possible because I've somehow, for whatever reason, been adopted by the Vipassana community. 
And uh, that has really been an enormous support in my work. And I'm very grateful for that. So it's a wonderful opportunity today to express that gratitude to those of you who likewise have, have come to the Dhamma, in many cases, through the teachings that are taught here and at IMS and in other such centers. But although it is a memoir, it's not a story of my life because my life is intrinsically of any interest. I use the, the narrative of my own story as a framework for uh, presenting how I have uh, come to understand and in many cases come to struggle with uh, Buddhist ideas. Um, I've sought in my life to, to integrate, uh, as best I can, the practices of meditation, uh, the moral and, and ethical values of the Dharma, and to make sense of its philosophy, its psychology, and so on. But also, and particularly as my work has become more of a, of a teacher, uh, leading retreats, uh, counseling people, I've also been, fa I've been finding myself placed in a, a position where um, I'm repeatedly uh, called upon to address the suffering and the questions and the confusions of people living in this world, here and now, in the late 20th, in the early 20th century. And this has been, I think, the primary uh, impetus for my attempts to interpret what do these teachings mean? How do they speak to our condition as men and women, women largely lay men and women, living in the kind of world we find ourselves in in these days? <coughs> Some of you may have read uh, my earlier book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, in which I present a, a, an agnostic uh, version of Buddhism, largely as a result of my uh, particular difficulty in being able to accept the doctrines of uh, reincarnation or rebirth, and also the doctrine of karma, karma as an explanation for how the world came to be the way it is, uh, a, a cosmogonic theory, which is the traditional Buddhist and Hindu way of understanding why, why we're here, why good things and bad things happen to us, and how by acting now, in, according to particular moral principles, we will uh, create for ourselves a future that will continue after our deaths. Now, these doctrines struck me in some ways as being neither demonstrable nor refutable, much in the same way as many religious beliefs are, namely those of God, of, um, or particularly that of God and the will of God and redemption and so on. And religion, and Buddhism I think is undeniably a religion, at least in practice, uh, seems to need to depend upon uh, these kinds of, of metaphysical ideas to support and give somehow legitimacy uh, to what uh, is being practiced and what is being uh, done in our lives as Buddhists or Christians or Muslims. But I feel that 
the more I look into the Buddhist teachings, the, the more that I'm struck by elements that do not really seem to fit uh, the classic definition of religion as a belief system. The Buddha, I feel, is remarkable um, in how he is a, a, a critic, uh, a, a very sharp, um, rational um, an analyzer of traditional religious ideas. We find in particular his refusal to address uh, questions of a metaphysical nature, whether the world is, has a beginning, whether the world has an end, whether it's finite, whether it's infinite, whether the mind and the body are the same, or whether mind is one thing and body is another, whether one exists after death, or whether one does, does not exist after death. And that, I feel, is a teaching that is very distinctive to the Buddha, and one that, in many respects, flies in the face of what we expect religion to somehow do for us, to provide answers to these big questions. But for the Buddha, he saw these questions as somehow irrelevant. He didn't reject them, he didn't say, this is true, this is false, he simply said, this is irrelevant. <coughs> Because the real issue that matters is the suffering of ourselves, the suffering of others, the suffering of our world. And his teaching is primarily and from the very outset concerned with addressing the question of suffering. Let me read a, a passage um, that describes a period in my life as a monk. Uh, the period in which I started to first have great difficulties with some of these ideas. My teacher was called Geshe Rabton. Um, he was a marvelous man, uh, a very erudite uh, teacher and a very um, a man of enormous integrity. And Geshe Rabton told us to subject the texts we studied in the monastery to rational scrutiny and critique. But he also insisted that the authors of those texts were fully enlightened beings. It dawned on me that we were not expected to use logic and debate to establish whether or not the doctrine of rebirth was true. We were only using them to prove, as best we could, what the founders of the tradition had already established to be true. If the arguments failed to convince us, that did not really matter. For in the end, reason was subordinate to faith. Geshe encourages to keep inquiring into these matters, but as long as we did not arrive at the same conclusion as the tradition, then clearly we had not inquired enough. Do not accept my words just out of faith in me, said the Buddha, but in reality, we were expected to do just that. I realized then that to pursue my vocation as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, belief in rebirth was not optional, but obligatory. These issues were not merely academic. They had a direct bearing on my social identity as a monk and my material survival in the world. I could not, without being a hypocrite, 
present myself in public as a Buddhist monk, Geshe had started asking me to instruct classes of lay people and younger novices, while privately aware that I could not accept one of the cardinal tenets of Buddhism. I experienced a disconcerting gap between my external persona, my role in the world, and my inward state of mind. When I look at photographs of myself taken at the monastery in Switzerland, I have a shine in my eyes and a smile on my face. But when I read through my diaries, I am struck by how much time I spent wallowing in anxiety, doubt, insecurity and unrequited longing. Then one sleepless night, I realized that even if there was no life after death, even if the mind was an emergent property of the brain, even if there were no moral law of karma governing my fate, this would have no effect whatsoever on my commitment to the practice of the Dhamma. I had to acknowledge that although I had been paying lip service to these ideas, I had no interest at all in future lifetimes or liberation from the cycle of birth and death. Yet Tibetan Buddhism taught that one could not even consider oneself a Buddhist if one valued this life more than one's destiny after death. But I did. No matter how hard I tried, I was incapable of giving more importance to a hypothetical post-mortem existence than to this life, this very life, here and now. Moreover, the Buddhist teachings and practices that had the most impact upon me did so precisely because they heightened my sense of being fully alive in and responsive to this world. When I told Geshe Rabton of my difficulty in believing in rebirth, he was shocked. The idea that one might subject such a doctrine to rational analysis simply in order to test whether or not it was true was, for him, nyunba, crazy. He furrowed his brow and stared at me with a troubled and uncomprehending expression. He did not seem able to grasp what my problem was. Finally, he said, this is a Buddhist monastery. If you don't believe in rebirth, then how, he pointed to the window, then swept his arm across the villages and towns that lay far below us on the shores of Lake Geneva, then how are we any different from all those people out there? For Geshe, belief in rebirth was not just an intellectual preference, it was an essential part of his moral identity. If you did not believe that your actions would have consequences after your death, then why would you be motivated to be, behave in anything but a greedy, self-centered way during your brief span of life on this earth? In the end, though I never dared tell Geshe this, I resolved the dilemma by adopting an agnostic position on rebirth. I recognized that were I to be questioned on the subject, the only honest answer 
would be to say that I did not know whether there was life after death or not. This agnostic stance had the double advantage of enabling me to escape the charge of hypocrisy while at the same time not actually denying what the tradition regarded as an axiomatic article of Buddhist faith. Such self-serving casuistry was what Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, would have, would have called eel wriggling. <laughs> but it, there's a, in the Brahmajala Sutta he talks about the eel wrigglers. But it allowed me a respite from the turmoil of doubt and enabled me to continue, for the time being at least, with my training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And that was a very crucial moment for me in my study and uh, practice of Buddhism. And it somehow set the scene or set the stage uh, for what I then um, subsequently did. Um, after some, more, some further years of, of realizing that I could not really embrace the, the orthodox doctrines of the Tibetan tradition, I decided to, uh, to leave that school and to go to train in Zen Buddhism in South Korea. And uh, that was, again, a wonderful experience. Uh, it was uh, a, a very, very different in many ways from my training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Uh, there was virtually no emphasis at all on Buddhist doctrine on uh, arriving at uh, reasoned conclusions about the teachings uh, found in the texts, but gave total attention and priority to the cultivation of meditative inquiry, and in particular around the, around the practice of a question, what is this? And so for three months in the summer, and three months in the winter, we would sit in a, in, a, in a room with rice paper windows. And for 12 hours a day, from three in the morning till nine at night, we would sit on the floor and ask, what is this? And that was it. We would have one interview every three months, although we could go and see the teacher whenever we liked. And I loved it. Let me just read a little bit out about the, um, my experience in Zen. By the time I reached Korea, and this was in 1980, I realized that no single Asian form of Buddhism was likely to be effective as a treatment for the peculiar maladies of a late 20th century post-Christian secular existentialist. <laughs> That's how I thought of myself at the time. Having learned this lesson through my painful disillusion with Tibetan Buddhism, I was careful not to repeat the same mistakes with Korean Zen. I attended to what I was taught without the literalist fervor that marked my initial embrace of the Tibetan tradition. I maintained an ironic but respectful distance from Korean Zen orthodoxy. I put Kuzan Sunim's 
instructions into practice. That was the name of our teacher. But in a way, but in a way that corresponded with my own interests and needs. To my surprise, Kuzan Sunim was just like Geshe Ramtan. Despite their largely incompatible versions of Buddhism, they were otherwise very similar. Both men came from humble rural backgrounds and had risen through their own efforts to become the equivalents of bishops. They were conservative, committed to upholding and transmitting what they had been taught by their teachers and the lineage. They were convinced of the unique validity of their approach and had no interest in any other. And they embodied a constancy, moral integrity and nobility that humbled me. I may have had my disagreements with Geshe Rabton, but they had little effect on my respect for him. And when I could not accept something Kuzan Sunin taught, that too did not diminish the esteem in which I held him. My Zen, I confess, was a rather mixed bag. It was grounded on mindfulness of the breath and body, which I'd been taught by Mr. Goenka many years before, a practice that Kuzan Sunim dismissed as no more meaningful than watching a corpse exhale. <laughs> the question, what is this, reminded me very much of Martin Heidegger's Seinsfrage, the forgotten question of being, as well as the poignant commentary at the end of Heidegger's essay on technology that questioning is the piety of thought. Nor did I forget what I had learned in Madhyamaka philosophy from my Tibetan teachers, that emptiness is the unfindability of things, which is reached by pursuing an ultimate inquiry into their nature. So each time I asked, what is this? It echoed with these other associations. Nor in the course of seven three-month retreats did I have any of the shattering insights or breakthroughs for which Zen is renowned. <laughs> By the time I went to Korea, I had little interest in such things. I was more concerned with refining my sense of the sheer mysteriousness of life so that it infused each moment of my waking existence, thereby serving as a ground from which to respond more openly and vitally to whatever occurred. Now, much of this book, um, once we get into the, the second two-thirds, which or the second part of the book, which uh, is entitled Layman, the first part of the book is entitled Monk, for obvious reasons. In the second part of the book, having, having moved from the Tibetan into the Korean Zen tradition, I then find myself largely exploring the, uh, the tradition of the Pali Canon. Uh, I've never considered myself a Theravada Buddhist. Uh, who, in other words, someone who, uh, ex is, whose, whose understanding of Buddhism is based on the 
the tradition founded by Buddha Gosa in 5th century Ceylon. I consider myself really a Nikayavadin, uh, someone who follows the teachings of the, of the Nikayas, in other words, the discourses and the, and the Vinaya, um, taught or recorded in the Pali Canon and believed to be the earliest record we have of what the historical Buddha taught. So, as Alan mentioned, um, I started making trips to India, uh, first with him and then later with my colleague Shantam Seth. And for for many times I visited the historical places where this man lived and taught. And this was an enormous eye-opener to me. For the first time, uh, this rather um, idealized figure of the Buddha became grounded in the physical landscapes of the places where he lived. In other words, of the trees and the, the insects and the birds and the crops. And even today, when you travel through the poorer parts of Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, the way the people till the soil, the way they draw the water from the wells, the way they utilize uh, the bullocks and the cows and the way they dry the dung to make their fires. These are probably little changed from the way in which those cultures would have been two and a half thousand years earlier. And this sense of the Buddha uh, began more and more to render him as an historical figure, as a human figure, as a person who likewise, like us, uh, lived and worked in a world of conflict, a world of uh, conflicting interests, in a world of power groups, in a world of um, different religious and philosophical factions. And this very much helped me ground his teaching in an actual uh, uh, historical and human situation. And I found this enormously helpful. And it went hand in hand with my study of the Pali Canon in terms of its doctrines and its teachings. And I sought in particular to try to, uh, to identify those passages in the Canon which are not derivable or, uh, or cannot, cannot be simply deduced from the prevailing ideas that would have existed elsewhere in the, in the Upanishads and in the Jaina teachings that coexisted or pre-existed uh, the Buddha's own time. But also, um, I found myself no longer as a monk. I found myself as a layperson, as a married layperson, uh, living in a lay community, uh, teaching other lay people. And I began to question uh, the fact that the role of the, of the monk or the nun is somehow regarded almost uh, unquestioningly in some cultures as a more appropriate or somehow a more, a more valid, a more serious way of practicing the Dhamma. I'll just read a bit concerning that point. Wherever I looked, in India, China, Southeast Asia or Tibet, it was always the serene, world-renouncing, contemplative monk who represented the ideal of a Buddhist life. Lay people tended to be seen as second-rate Buddhists 
whose duties in the world prevented them from pursuing a high-octane spiritual career. And those exceptional lay figures who did achieve prominence in their traditions are presented as having done so in spite of their lay status. The unstated presumption is this. What really matters is inner spiritual experience, which, by definition, consists of irreducibly private states of mind. Today, Buddhist meditation practices are widely promoted as techniques which, if correctly applied, will lead one to greater inner happiness, peace and contentment. No matter what is going on in the world around him, the good Buddhist is depicted as an unflappable beacon of smiling calm, ready to respond at any moment with a kind gesture or some choice words of wisdom. As a way of coping with the hectic pace and stress of modern life, the housewife or business executive alike is, to, is encouraged to become a monk in lay clothing. But as a culture and civilization, Buddhism consists of far more than inner experiences. It is known through buildings, gardens, sculptures, paintings, calligraphy, poetry and craft work. It is present in each mark made by artists and artisans on rocks, clay votive tablets, fragile palm leaves, primed canvases, hand-pressed paper, wooden printing blocks, raked gravel and paper lanterns. On my visits to monasteries in Tibet, the polished furrows in the rock worn into the mountain by centuries of passing feet, moved me far more than the shrines to which they led. Who were the men and women who made them? Who were the people who constructed the intricately carved stone gateways at Sanchi, erected the giant stupa at Borobudur, laid out the rock gardens at Rioanji, or sculpted the standing Buddhas of Bamiyan. We don't know. These forgotten people are my fellows. They are the silent ones on whose behalf I want to speak. I know nothing of their religious beliefs or spiritual attainments. Their understanding of the subtleties of Buddhist doctrine is irrelevant. They left behind visible and tangible objects created by their own hands, dumb things that speak to me across the centuries in a language that no text can reproduce. Irrespective of what Buddhist icon a painted scroll may depict, it embodies the intelligence and imagination, the passion and care of its creator. I feel an affinity with the makers of these things. A Zen garden can say as much about what the Buddha taught as the most erudite treatise on emptiness. Now, um, this also touches into another thread that runs through the book, and that is my own work as a, as a photographer, which Alan mentioned. 
which is what I would have done had I not got sidetracked for 20 years by Buddhism. But it's, an, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a form of art that I continued, albeit sporadically and certainly not in a professional way. Um, when I started arriving in Korea, where in the Zen tradition there was a, a great valuation of artistic and creative work. Many of the monks would do calligraphy or they would do some sort of painting or they would do tea ceremony or whatever it was, or gardening. And all of these things were seen as an integral part of one's practice. But also, as I started looking through the Pali texts, I began to see that uh, the Buddha wasn't uh, speaking uh, you know, uh, uh, exclusively of, of the transcendence of self. And in fact, some of the most striking passages... Um, are, are those in which he doesn't problematize self at all. And he uses the word atta, uh, self. And so I think it's actually a mistake uh, to say that the Buddha denied that there was a self, the famous doctrine of no self or emptiness of self. And not only did he... Um, not deny the notion of self, he saw it as something that was, in a way, to be crafted. And I'll just continue with the passage I'm reading, because it goes straight into that. Just as a farmer irrigates his fields, said Gautama in the Dhammapada, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a block of wood, so does the sage tame the self. This is an odd statement. Rather than encouraging the renunciation of self, here, if we follow these metaphors, the Buddha seemed to be encouraging the creation of a self. To tame, in this context, means to pacify the selfish and unruly aspects of one's ego in order to begin forging a more caring, focused and integrated character. The examples he used are of working people, farmers, fletchers, carpenters. Just as he compared the practice of mindfulness to the way a skilled wood-turner uses his tools, here he admired the work of those who till the soil, make arrows, and carve wood. Their handicrafts serve to illustrate how to nurture, fashion, and direct the raw materials, one's sensations, feelings, emotions, perceptions, intentions, of oneself. Rather than dismiss the self as a fiction, Gautama presented it as a project to be realized. By self, he referred not to the transcendent self with a capital S of the Brahmins of his time, which by definition cannot be anything other than what it eternally is, but the functional moral self that breathes and acts in this world. Such a vision of self 
is more pertinent to a layman or laywoman living in this world than to a monk or nun intent on renouncing it. It presents a very different sort of challenge. Instead of training oneself to achieve a serene detachment from the turbulent events of this life, it encourages one to grapple with these events in order to imbue them with meaning and purpose. The emphasis is on action rather than inaction, on engagement rather than disengagement. In other words, it seems that when we uh, select certain passages that do not conform or reiterate the, uh, the dominant idea that Buddhism is about achieving liberation from the cycle of birth and death, achieving nirvana, but rather is concerned with how we transform our thoughts, our feelings, our ideas, our, our bodies uh, in, in this life, then the concept of self uh, becomes um, a processual one, or what in, in some schools of modern philosophy is called a performative conception of self. In other words, we are what we do. We're not somehow defined at birth or through some inner essential nature that never changes um, as being this sort of person or that sort of person we have the capacity to change and transform ourselves precisely because we are impermanent, um, contingent, conditional beings. We are the flux and flow of uh, streams of thoughts, of ideas, of impulses, of emotions, of interactions with others that is continuously in a flow. And what the Buddha emphasizes is to become far more acutely attuned to the flow of life, not in a sort of standing back and just looking at it way, but in a way in which we are open to it, we see it more vividly, but also, and crucially, that we respond to it. That the practice becomes very much a practice of responsiveness, and what that responsiveness begins more and more to, uh, to pay heed to is the suffering of the world. And here I think we find the roots of, of empathy, of compassion, of love, um, which are not somehow the, the result of our practice, but actually lie at its very source. The aim of mindfulness, this is in a few pages later, the aim of mindfulness is to know suffering fully. That's the, the, the task that the Buddha describes in relation to the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. The aim of mindfulness is to know suffering fully. It, entail, it entails paying calm, unflinching attention to whatever impacts this organism, be it the song of a lark or the scream of a child, the bubbling of a playful idea or a twinge in the lower back. You attend not just to the outward stimuli themselves, 
but equally to your own inward reactions to them. You do not condemn what you see as your failings or applaud what you regard as success. You notice things come, you notice them go. Over time, the practice becomes less a self-conscious exercise in meditation done at fixed periods each day and more a sensibility that infuses one's awareness at all times. And I am not the only one who suffers. You suffer too. Every sentient creature suffers. When myself is no longer the all-consuming preoccupation it once was, when I see it as one narrative thread among myriad others, when I understand it to be as contingent and as transient as anything else, then the barrier that separates me from not me begins to crumble. The conviction of being a closed cell of self is not only delusive, but anaesthetic. It numbs me to the suffering of the world. To embrace suffering culminates in greater empathy, the capacity to feel what it is like for the other to suffer, which is the ground for unsentimental compassion and love. And I'm jumping ahead a bit here. This is more a conclusion, and we're going to wind up in a minute. Buddhism has become for me a philosophy of action and responsibility. It provides a framework of values, ideas and practices that nurture my ability to create a path in life, to define myself as a person, to act, to take risks, to imagine things differently, to make art. The more I prize Gautama's teachings free from the matrix of Indian religious thought in which they are entrenched, and the more I come to understand how his own life unfolded in the context of his times, the more I discern a template for, uh, the more I discern a template for living that I can apply at this time in this increasingly secular and globalized world. I am fully aware that the passages to which I am drawn in the canon are those that best fit my own views and biases as a secular Westerner. Critics have accused me of cherry-picking Buddhist sources, of extracting only those citations that support my position while either ignoring or explaining away everything else. To this objection, I can only point out that it has ever been thus. Each Buddhist school that has emerged in the course of history has done exactly the same. Chinese Buddhists selected the texts that best fitted their needs as Chinese, just as Tibetans chose those that best fitted theirs. If Buddhism is a living tradition for you, one to which you turn for clues as to how to lead your life here and now, rather than for cold, impersonal facts, 
then how could it be otherwise? In this respect, I confess that what I am doing is not an objective study of Buddhism, but what I can only call theology, albeit theology without theos. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. The... Um, uh, <clears throat> there is, of course, a lot more in the book, and this is really just a kind of a taster. I've said nothing at all about my understanding of the Buddha and his life, which is a, a, a rather important thread that runs especially through the latter part of the book. Um, but I hope I've given you a, a glimpse, at least, of the, of the style in which I've uh, chosen to write this text and some of the ideas and, and some of the um, events in my life uh, that I found uh, uh, to be useful in exploring in this work. Um, I'd be happy to take questions or comments. Um, and we have a roving mic. We have about 15 minutes, and then I'd like to conclude. Uh, this gentleman here in the so, house. So I have the mic, and I ask a question? <laughs> um, well, yes, I suppose you can exploit your position there. <laughs> Yes. Um, my sense is, do you think this perspective is unique to the Western um, understanding and interpretation of Buddhism? Um, since it's an exotic uh, philosophy to a Western mind? Uh, no. Um, it's, um, Thank you. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a perspective that is becoming, and I'm not saying my particular take, but generally speaking, uh, this is a perspective that is beginning to emerge in Asia as well. In other words, um, I think many of us, whether we are Westerners or whether we are modern Japanese or Burmese or Indians, are beginning to approach Buddhism with a similar set of questions, a similar uh, sense of, let's say, um, uh, how does Buddhism fit in relationship to the findings of modern science, the way in which we now understand the human organism to have evolved, the, or, the, the, the understanding of the brain? And also, um, in a culture where um, lay people are not condemned to a 24-7 uh, working on the farm kind of life, uh, where we have societies where there is a far greater degree of leisure time, where people are um, uh, in doubt, you know, have, have a far greater degree of, of education, uh, where women in particular are, are, are able to have control over their fertility, uh, where there is greater, there's greater gender equality, where there are greater uh, systems of justice and so forth, and greater equality between people. And these are structures of society, uh, 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 ideas of society and the person that are not exclusively Western. They may have had their origins in certain Western traditions, but really now these ideas uh, seem to be spreading uh, widely through the world. And you find uh, recently there's been a movement in Japan um, which has resulted in a book called Pruning the Bodhi Tree, <laughs> which is very much about... This has caused a great controversy in Japan, uh, because a couple of scholars began to question to what extent certain traditional Japanese ideas of Buddhism were really um, based on the primary Buddhist sources. Um, I think a very important movement that's occurring in India today, 
um, among the Dalits, the former untouchables, uh, regards Buddhism not as a, as, as a religious doctrine or even very much as a practice of meditation, but rather as a social and political movement. And it's a movement that now embraces millions of lives across India. And um, uh, in, in many ways, I think, uh, uh, Buddhists across the world um, are uh, beginning to ask the kinds of questions that I've been struggling with and perhaps many of us have, certainly many of my peers in, in the teaching community here in the West, uh, in trying to, to articulate how these values um, are addressing and offering us uh, uh, methodologies, offering us uh, moral guidance, offering us philosophical and spiritual insight in the kind of world we live in today. The gentleman there by the pillar. Oh, sorry, this chap here, and then over there. First off, I just want to say um, how nourishing it is to listen to you talk, just in terms of uh, the points that you're bringing up. And um, in listening to you speak, I'm recalling a, a recording I listened to you on a, a series of tapes called Buddhism in America, where there was... Uh, um, a lot of teachers speaking, and then at the end you concluded sort of the preposterousness of actually looking at uh, the particular characteristic of a Buddhism in the United States because it seemed to be antithetical to what Buddhism was about, at least in that particular talk. Mm -hmm. And now I hear um, a sort of trend in the opposite direction where it's actually rooting it in place based on mm -hmm. the experiences of going around uh, in India. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, um, with that sort of lens, um, looking at this place as, as peculiar and interesting and multicultural as the Bay Area, are there any particular trends that you can see emerging here? I mean, if I think of things in terms of just other things outside of Buddhism, for example, free speech movement and counterculturalism mm -hmm. and things of that sort, and then think of the geography here of the plate tectonics and the um, mm -hmm. the easternmost part of the eastern culture and the westernmost part of the western culture and what sort of a that might lend itself to well i'm i'm not a uh, I, i'm not a native of this particular bit of the west um i fly through on these brief visits um but i feel that all of those elements that you mention um will inevitably, I think, uh, be uh, uh, the ground on which some kind of form of the Dharma emerges in these particular areas of America. Um, in some ways, I, I'm reminded of, the, of, a, of a line from T.S. Eliot who said, uh, for us there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. In other words, what form of Dharma of Buddhism will uh, take shape either here in California or in Tokyo or in, 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 in France, um, will be the result of how people like yourself and myself and all of us actually put these ideas into practice in our own lives. Uh, we, we sometimes talk of Buddhism coming to the West, or I've even used the term just now, Buddhism encountering modernity. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that there's some sort of invisible entity called Buddhism 
that sort of moves from one bit of geography to another. But it means that if these values, this is just a way of speaking about how uh, certain sets of values, of ideas, of practices, when embodied in people's lives, make an actual difference in the world in which they live. And it will probably be only after generations of this kind of movement, of which we're really just at the beginning, where you know, there's a lot of us here, Buddhism has grown very rapidly in certain parts of the West. But we should not be uh, deceived into thinking that we can somehow work out what it's going to be if we just you know, hold, hold a few conferences and, uh, and, uh, and whatever. No, it's going to take time. It always has. And in Asia, for example, Buddhism tends to take a couple of hundred years before it assumes a form that is distinctive and integral to the cultures in which it was introduced. I don't know whether we'll speed that up that much. But the real emphasis has to be on what you, as a Californian living here, do in your life and the difference that makes to you and others. Uh, the back there. No, this chap has had his hand up for a long time. Uh, the, the, blue, the blue shirt and there, that one, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was speaking to a teacher about is there room in the Dharma for our predatory carnivorous selves? Our, you know, feels like men are evolved to kill things, you know. And so we, in this culture now, are saturated with violence. It seems mm -hmm. almost uniquely American that we have the television shows, the movies, the video games, the daily news. And what our government does overseas, it just seems... Uh, almost beyond belief. I, I mean, it seems like America is held up as a, an icon of, of freedom, but there's also this, the dark side, you know, and I'm, I'm, my teacher today said, well, it's all one, you know, you, all the, that carnivorous energy inside you, that's part of you, you know, so you have to just accept it. And I'm wondering your th what your thoughts are about this, because it seems like it's really on topic now. We're talking mm -hmm. about violence in American society. I mean, the Pope said violence was evil, period. So, what's your take on it? <laughs> well, I'm, luckily I'm not the Pope, so, <laughs> so my word need not count for so much. But one of the things that, um, one of the things that uh, became very, very clear to me in researching and reconstructing the Buddha's life at his time is that he was living in an extremely violent world. And he had, to, uh, in, he had to try and establish his teachings and create communities in the midst of a, a very unstable, a very politically ambitious, very conflicted, and ultimately a world in which everything broke down into war and violence. And um, so I'm not going to sort of really just... I mean, of course, I, I completely sympathize with what you say. I mean, I don't think this is deniable, what, 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 what you say. But I think we have to look very deeply within ourselves. And if we are to use... Uh, I, I don't think Buddhism is a solution to these problems. I think it can certainly um, help us to live our lives in the way in which we become much more conscious of the, 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 the impulses of violence within ourselves, within our society. And I think, as your teacher seemed to have said to you, it is very important to admit that, to 
to acknowledge that, to recognize that our privileges, um, our standard of living, um, by enjoying those, we are complicit in the subjugation of other people, the, um, uh, the various industries, uh, the food industry, sorry? The killing of animals, the killing of animals, all of these things, we are complicit in them. And this, I think, causes us, well, hopefully, will lead us to ask deeply what it is that we um, value most deeply. And are we really living, are we really willing to live according to those deeper values, even if it means sacrificing a certain standard of living? That's the big question. It's very easy to have these ideas and to be idealistic, but if push came to shove, how easily would you renounce some of the things that you take for granted in your life today. And I think for those of us living in a, in a privileged culture such as this, in, in the States or in Europe, um, I'm always slightly uncomfortable when um, people somehow uh, uh, you know, present an, a rather ideal, idealistic vision of, of how the world should be and how awful conditions are and yet don't really seem to make a great effort to change the quality of their own lives. Yes, and this will have to be the last question. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for your teaching. Um, I was relieved to find that as a Sunday go to meeting Christian, I wasn't actually bothered by the things you said about being an atheist. Um, but I would like to ask you to say a few words about the third noble truth because I heard you say something that I interpreted as uh, you said something along the lines of if we think of Buddhism not as being about uh, escaping from the round of rebirth mm -hmm. or about nirvana and then rather but rather as you know dot 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 a, a lot of other things and I just got a, a sort of pang of fear <laughs> I need it to be about nirvana. Uh -huh. uh, it doesn't matter to me that much whether it's this lifetime or some other because I don't know and it, and it does seem to me genuinely foolish to have an opinion about what happens after death if you haven't actually done, been through it consciously. Mm -hmm. um, but but it, it's really important to me that if Buddhism is going to become, if, if some kind of American Buddhism mm -hmm. is going to emerge that it not abandon the third noble truth. Oh, I would be the last person to advocate abandoning the Third Noble Truth. In fact, the, 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 the core of this book lies in chapter 10, which is called Embrace Suffering, I think. Yeah, no, sorry, chapter 12, Embrace Suffering, which is a, um, a reflection on the Four Noble Truths. And I even provide in Appendix 3 a translation of the Buddha's first sermon, which is about the Four Noble Truths, i.e. including the third. <laughs> now, the, where I part company with perhaps a lot of traditional Buddhist orthodoxy is I don't see that the, I don't regard the aim of the Four Noble Truths to be the Third Noble Truth, which if you think about it is a bit odd anyway. I see the aim of the Buddhist practice as being the fourth noble truth. And I see nirvana, as the Buddha describes it, it is the, it is the, it is the letting go of, of greed, of hatred, of delusion. It is the stopping of those things momentarily or more permanently. 
But I do not see that as the end of the path. I see that as the beginning of the path. That it's from that, those moments in our lives in which we realize that we do not need, we know for ourselves deeply, that we do not need to be conditioned in our behavior by our greed, by our hatred, by our delusion. When we experience, let's say in meditation, moments of deep inner stillness and calm where we have a, a, a clear understanding that we are not bound to be the, the puppets of our impulses and drives and our fears and our greed and so on. At that moment, at those moments, we are then free to enter the stream of the fourth noble truth. The stream, this word, you know, stream entry, entering the stream, the stream refers to the Eightfold Path. This is canonical. The Buddha says, Sariputta, we say the stream, the stream. What Sariputta is the stream? And Sariputta says, the Noble Eightfold Path is the stream. And the person who, who possesses or, or who has made this Noble Eightfold Path themselves is the stream entrant. And that arises out of having had the experience of Nirvana. For me, the Four Truths are describing a sequence or a process of uh, tasks that are being recognized, performed and accomplished continuously. I don't see nirvana as a kind of a sort of quasi-mystical state in which we achieve some kind of you know, final liberation. I see it rather as a moment within the stream or the unfolding of the Four Truths. And um, I also don't see the Eightfold Path as somehow the end. It's simply a phase within this process so that when we get to right mindfulness, right concentration, what do we focus them on? What are we mindful of? What do we concentrate on? And I would argue we concentrate on and we are mindful of Dukkha, the first truth. And the more that we deepen our understanding, our awareness, our embrace of Dukkha, the more that uh, the, our whole perspective on life begins to change. And this goes back to your point. This is, I think, where transformation individually and socially can begin to happen, is when we deepen our uh, embrace of the suffering of the world, such that the pettiness of craving and grasping and greed and hatred begin to fall off of their own accord. And though that falling away, that letting go, as the Buddha describes it, leads to moments in which we realize we are free from these things. And such moments are the experiences of the, the blowing out, the nibbanic experience, stream entry, which reconnects us once again with the Eightfold Path. Um, I realize that's not an, an orthodox interpretation, but it's the only one that makes any sense to me. And otherwise, we have to see the Four Noble Truths really as a, as a strategy for achieving the goals of Indian religion, namely the cessation of birth and death um, and rebirth. And since I don't believe in rebirth, then that's not a particularly interesting project. <laughs> so that, that is how I would see it. But I would, uh, you know, if you want to see what I'm saying there, read the book. But what I plan to write next is, a, is, a, is an in-depth study of the Four Truths 
um, uh, and you know, in terms of how they're presented in the first sermon of the Buddha. I'm sorry, we have to end it here, really. Now, I'm very happy to sign copies of this thing. I'll be sitting at a table, and um, uh, if you have a copy with you, or if you'd like to purchase a copy and bring it to me, um, I, I can sign it for you. And thank you once again very much for, for being here. And um, I hope you have a, a good return home and a, a bon continuation, good continuation. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.